This is Macro Horizons, episode 228, The Anti-Doldrums, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with Ben Jeffrey and Vale Hartman to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of June 26th. Once upon a time, summertime in the U.S. rates market was a time for relaxation, vacations, beach days, and rejuvenation. Alas, with July's Fed meeting now very much in play, the season is better characterized as an extension of spring's angst. If you need us, we'll be here, alone, listening to Adele, in the dark, eating ice cream. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market and a bad joke or two. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. In the holiday-shortened week just past, the Treasury market had very little in terms of fundamental inputs from which to derive trading direction. What we did have was Powell's semi-annual congressional testimony, formerly known as Humphrey Hawkins, in which the chair outlined a compelling reason for foregoing a rate hike at the June FOMC meeting, and he outlined the potential risks for moving in July. He also went on to articulate some of the concerns that the Fed has as it relates to the credit tightening associated with the regional banking crisis. As we know, there are still looming changes on the regulatory front that have left regional banks reluctant to aggressively expand their lending profile. Now, this certainly does resonate, particularly following some of the press reporting regarding the potential for a 20% increase in capital at some of the largest institutions. Now, As that translates to the other roughly 4,800 banks in the system is a meaningful unknown and one that will keep decision makers sidelined, if nothing else. Powell also suggested that monetary policy is about where it needs to be. Now, that certainly doesn't take another quarter point hike off the table, but it does imply that there's not another 100 basis points of tightening yet to be executed during this campaign. While the tone to the market early was that of a consolidation with a modest bid, Powell's comments and a reminder that rate hikes are much more likely than rate cuts later in 2023 served to put upward pressure on yields, particularly in the front end of the curve. We saw the twos, tens inversion deepen to negative 100 basis points, and similarly, fives bonds moved deeper into negative territory. Both of these trends represent a reversal of what we had anticipated to be the defining macro trade of 2023, which is the beginning of the cyclical re-steepening. 
All that being said, the fundamentals still support the idea that by the end of this year, the twos, tens curve, and fives bonds for that matter, will end in positive territory as the market moves beyond pricing in a Fed that's committed to a restrictive policy stance for an extended period and instead chooses to focus on what comes next. In practical terms, the Fed has already told us that they plan to cut rates by 100 basis points next year. And given the history, one would be safe in assuming that they're underestimating the amount of fine-tuning that they ultimately need to deliver, which suggests that the market will continue to err on the side of assuming greater cuts will materialize once the Fed pivots its monetary policy stance. But for the time being, an extended period of consolidation in the run-up to the July FOMC decision remains the path of least resistance and one that we expect will define the next several weeks of trading. It was a week where the price action in U.S. rates was more notable than any fundamental economic updates on offer. We saw twos, tens drop back below negative 100 basis points for the first time since before the regional banking crisis. And we heard from Powell who commented that given the progress that has been made thus far, it may make sense to move rates higher but at a more moderate pace. It's also notable that in that context, Powell did make the observation that the credit tightening associated with the regional banking turmoil could in and of itself be worth a 25 basis point rate hike. Now, the question becomes, was that the hike that was foregone in June, or is he applying that on a forward basis? And as we move beyond the chair's semi-annual congressional testimony, that's going to remain top of mind for investors as the data that will be revealed before the meeting at the end of July begins to be released, of course, starting with June's payrolls report. It's worth noting that the shift in Fed communication, initially delivered by Powell at the press conference last week, and then doubled down on in front of the House and Senate more recently, is that the most likely outcome at the next meeting, and I'm intentionally ambiguous there, is more so a hike than a cut. And that means we've transitioned to the point where the Fed is sitting, waiting to evaluate the credit tightening implications of the banking crisis, the lagged impact of monetary policy, the influence of the balance sheet. And this means that as long as the data continues to outperform, whether that be a declining unemployment rate, still solid NFP gains, or robust core CPI prints, then the Fed will continue tightening, even if it's going to come at a slower pace than the every meeting cadence we've become accustomed to this year. So that means any stumble in the realized data, and now we've got yet another week with elevated jobless claims to think about, will reinforce this reaction function of patience as monetary policy makers, quote unquote, wait and see another month's of data before making a decision on a hike or not. There is an embedded question in Powell's conversation about a July rate hike, and that is whether six weeks of data is really enough to qualify as waiting to see. Because the reality is, Ben, as you point out, monetary policy works with a lagged impact. We're still working through the fallout from some of the initial rate hikes that we saw in 2022, long before monetary policy ever shifted into truly restrictive territory. And let us not forget that the debt ceiling saga that has defined the last several months functioned as QE at the moment that the Fed was attempting to do QT, and that is all going to be rectified 
over the course of the next two months as bill issuance picks back up, adding into the mix yet another uncertainty as we think about the trajectory of the labor market as well as inflation. And while we heard from Powell and Bowman advocating for a few more rate hikes this year and a higher terminal rate, Bostic was also on the tape. And while he doesn't vote this year, his opinion does represent one of the more centrist on the committee. And his opinion was that the most prudent stance for the Fed is to forego future tightening from here. And his underlying logic was that if, in fact, inflation is going to continue to decelerate, even modestly, that means that in real terms, monetary policy is going to become more restrictive. And while he certainly wasn't advocating for rate cuts, what Bostic was suggesting is that by keeping nominal policy rates on hold at roughly 5% for even longer, that's going to allow the restrictive impact to slowly build on itself, continue to drag on inflation, and ultimately make rates more restrictive in real terms the longer time goes on. Another important viewpoint to consider, as clearly there's a divergence of opinions among committee members on where to go from here, but it is useful to contemplate real policy rates given the economic impact derived from inflation-adjusted borrowing costs. And as that applies to firms and financing of operations and what that might mean or not mean for expansion plans, the July 7th release of the BLS payrolls data will offer important context. Obviously, we'll be watching for an extension of the increase in the unemployment rate that we saw in May, as well as whether or not headline payrolls can continue to expand. This will provide a useful setup ahead of the June CPI numbers. Our expectations remain that the used car component is going to shift from being a net positive to being a net negative for the core series, and we're anticipating a roughly two-tenths of a percent gain in the core series for the month of June. Now, when we think about how headline and core interact with one another, we had an astute client inquire about the interplay between the two. Specifically, as energy prices come off, do consumers use what is ostensibly excess disposable income in other categories in a given month? The short answer is that we expect that, all else being equal, people would rotate consumption out of necessities and into non-necessities only insofar as forward expectations for lower energy costs become embedded. Now, as we've seen in the most recent University of Michigan survey, near-term inflation expectations dropped sharply. So it then follows intuitively that some of the increased disposable income would be reallocated into non-necessities. This does beg the question, though, given how much downward pressure we've already seen on goods prices, would this impact be sufficient to shift the direction of core CPI? In deconstructing the core inflation figures, recall that OER and the shelter component remains the dominant driver. That, and as we mentioned earlier, used car prices. The incremental savings at the pump is unlikely to translate into larger ticket purchases, such as homes, higher rents, or car purchases. So we're less concerned about the rotation 
from headline CPI to core CPI occurring with a short enough lag to be relevant for monetary policy in the near term. And on the topic of evolving demand, despite the outperformance of the long end over the last several weeks, we saw an impressive stop through at the 20-year auction that cleared with a four-handle for the first time in seven months. And this reinforces the line of thinking that the bar for future tightenings is high enough that investors are content to take advantage of the discount on offer. I'll offer another interpretation, and that is it's a vote of confidence in the ability of monetary policymakers to re-anchor inflation expectations. Because if one believes that the Fed will do everything within its power to bring realized inflation back to the 2% inflation target, then there should be a downward bias on break-evens even further out the curve, particularly in the 20- and 30-year sector. So in practical terms, strong demand for 20s is a reflection that Powell and company are doing their jobs. And it's not just Powell and company. We heard from this past week. In fact, we got rate hikes from the SNB, the Norges Bank, and maybe most notably the surprise 50-bip hike from the Bank of England. Now, to call it a true surprise would probably be inappropriate, given that the market roughly had 35 basis points of a rate hike priced in before the event itself. But regardless, given the inflation situation in the UK, Governor Bailey was clearly comfortable delivering a half-point hike despite the risk to the British economy, not least of which is a topic that we're hearing an increasing amount about, which is the UK housing market. Given the nature of mortgages in the UK, and Canada for that matter, that are much shorter-term fixed loans than the 30-year benchmark that is the norm in the US, that means that a lot of borrowing that was done over the last two or three years at much lower rates will now be rolling into a floating rate environment with policy rates that are now multiple percentage points higher. So what this ultimately means is that mortgage payments are going to be dramatically higher. And this is going to need to come out either in the form of a fairly dramatic drawdown in real estate prices or a hit to consumption given that a greater share of household balance sheets will now need to be used on much higher mortgage payments, not in terms of discretionary consumption. I'll argue it's probably going to be a combination of the two. We'll see a slowing in home price appreciation, if not outright declines, and consumer stress develop as a result. But that's only in the UK. Using similar logic, we can look forward to a dynamic in the US in which student loan payments are no longer suspended and US households are faced on average, that will be yet another hit to discretionary income. And there's only so much of these increased expenses that can be offset by lower energy prices and not ultimately flow through to lower demand and subsequently core inflation. And as we often discuss, treasuries are somewhat unique in the fact that they're not just going to respond to higher fixed costs domestically, but long-end treasury yields are also a function of the global growth and inflation outlook. And given the headwinds that are beginning to solidify more apparently in a variety of geographies, the UK, China, Canada, there is a growing list of reasons to start liking owning the risk-free rate anytime 10-year yields back up above, say, 380, clearly a zone that's become very important over the last several weeks and an area that we continue to advocate as a buy target in anticipation that the data begins to slow more materially to the benefit of bonds. Ben, you raise an interesting point about how many major global central banks remain in hiking mode. What do you think this means about the Fed's decision to hike in July? I'd argue that there's a misconception that all the major central banks at the moment 
are in some way undertaking a coordinated hiking campaign. I think the reality is that central bank coordination is much more likely to occur when the global economy faces a significant systemic risk, whether that is a pandemic or a financial crisis. Regardless, it tends to be when the Fed and other major central banks are in cutting mode, not in hiking mode. And as we know, not every country fared the same during the pandemic, and so the post-pandemic period has resulted in different risks for different economies. The PBOC is a great example as China cuts rates at a moment when the rest of the world, or most of the rest of the world, is actively hiking rates. That clearly reflects the type of divergence in monetary policy that characterizes the end of a global tightening campaign. What remains to be seen, as this applies to a July hike, the Fed will be much more focused on the inflation narrative domestically, and of course the jobs market, than it will be looking to the actions of overseas monetary policy makers. So what you're saying is equities in Dallas are more relevant than monetary policy in Beijing? Well, they are if you live in Texas. Wait, Beijing's in Texas? In the week ahead, the Treasury market sees an early auction schedule with $42 billion two years on Monday, followed by $43 billion five years on Tuesday, and the nominal coupon auctions for June will be capped with a $35 billion seven-year on Wednesday. The economic data calendar picks up. We do see consumer confidence figures on Tuesday, which will offer the market some context for the underlying employment picture in the month of June, given the correlation between the conference board's measure of consumer confidence and the overall labor market. Unlike the University of Michigan survey, which tends to have the headline figure influenced disproportionately by prevailing energy prices, particularly prices at the pump, as it were. Let us not forget that it is month-end, quarter-end, as well as the end of the first half of 2023. So in the context of market positioning, we'd expect that, all else being equal, the market will engage in a period of consolidation with a modest downward bias on Treasury yields, particularly further out the curve. This isn't to suggest that we're expecting the 2s, 10s curve to invert through the negative 111 basis point cycle low. However, it does suggest that the steepening will at least for the moment, be contained by the reality of flows as investors seek to shore up positions into the end of the quarter. Taking a step back, as it appears now, we're likely to end the first half of the year with 10-year yields at 375, which to be fair is the upper end of the recent range. Now, we did see 10-year yields reach as low as 325 earlier in the year, and we continue to retain our year-end target for 10-year yields, which is 3%. Now, the path to 3% is not predicated on a significant economic slowdown. However, it will require further evidence that the lagged impact of monetary policy decisions, both domestically and abroad, have finally begun to turn the momentum within the labor market 
And that will ultimately imply that a Fed pivot in 2024 should be a foregone conclusion. That being said, there's a lot of economic data over the course of the next six months. And as the market readies for the July FOMC meeting, we'll have the benefit of the BLS employment report as well as updated inflation figures. So while at present there's about a 75% probability of a rate hike priced into the market, we won't take that as conclusive or a green light for Powell unless and until it survives the payrolls report and CPI in the setup to the July meeting. If we see significant disappointments in either of those measures, another pause in July should definitively be on the table. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. And as work from home has transitioned back to five days in the office, we're reminded of the timeless observations that just because we work here doesn't mean we work here. And an early close is just a state of mind. SIFMA. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. So please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingen at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. For full legal disclosure, visit bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.